We're now in the final week of the Trump presidency, but the aftershocks of the insurrection remain. Donald Trump is now the only president to be impeached twice. Despite that, the reckoning for the Republican Party has not yet come. Will there be enough Senate votes to convict him later this year? How should the party handle QAnon? And how will congressional Republicans help or hinder investigations into the administration's wrongdoing? For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Michael Smolens, you're the political columnist for the San Diego Union Tribune, and you have had a busy couple of days, just like all of us watching all the madness going on in Washington. So the second impeachment of Donald Trump is historic because this is the most bipartisan impeachment in history. Can you unpack what that means for Trump and his legacy? Well, I mean, this impeachment is a huge stain, but I mean, twice, uh, there's only been three presidents impeached. There's been four impeachments. So Yes, this will, you know, it's always going to be part of history. And I think it it takes different kinds of uh, uh, levels of of intensity. Uh, Andrew Johnson was uh, impeached and barely survived a Senate uh, trial just after the Lincoln assassination in the Civil War. Clinton was impeached for lying about sex. And, you know, he was impeached. There's no denying that. But that's just not something that really comes up when Bill Clinton is talked about these days. It's always going to be part of his record. This obviously, given the you know the assault on the Capitol, the effort to overturn the election, is going to be front and center when Trump is uh, discussed in the history books. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, certainly the first impeachment. Uh, there was lots of threads in there. It was kind of confusing. You kind of had to really follow the story to understand the ins and outs of what happened there. While this one is pretty straightforward, most of us saw it unfold on whatever cable news they happened to be watching that day. And now, as more is being learned about exactly what went down, you know, it looks worse than it actually was when you actually see some actual details. Yes, and details, as you say, are going to be coming out. It, it's a uh remarkable and frightening, uh, you know, they're looking at whether some uh, Republican members of Congress were involved in helping coordinate this or assist the uh, assault on the Capitol, which is is just really unbelievable. But that's where we're at today. Mm-hmm. And also of note, uh, several congressional Republicans have said privately that they wanted to vote for impeachment, but chose not to because fears of violence, many of them have received death threats. What does that mean for a political party when functionally, I hate to use the cliche, but you're letting the terrorist win if you want to do something, but you feel that you can't because someone's threatened to kill you. Right. I, I don't want to minimize anybody being threatened. Uh, and this is, you know, a special circumstance, I think, because I think these people mean business, but people are threatened. Uh, politicians are threatened. I mean, you look at uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, and the, the squad They've all been threatened. Um, you know, the, the people become lightning rods. I'm not justifying that. Or look, you know, these people have to vote how they're going to vote. Uh, you know, so that's that's a concern. Um, you know, there are political considerations too as to how they voted, and there there were not any there were not easy choices for the Republicans. I'll give them a little sympathy for that. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that they knew it was going to pass probably made it easier to vote for the no side rather than something that was truly up in the air. There wasn't much mystery. As soon as the articles were announced, it was pretty much said and done at that point. Well, that's that's true. But, you know, some of the dynamics there that if I could expound a little bit, you know, I said, uh, you know, political considerations, uh, the, the Republicans, you know, I think they're very concerned, even if they wanted to in their hearts vote for it. 
Trump's followers are a major force in the party and will continue to be so. There's been a fair amount written about how, well, they could have gotten rid of Trump by voting for uh, impeachment. You know, a lot of times Trump has you know, been written off and he has survived. He, he survives unlike any other typical politician. So I think that was a big concern for a lot of uh, them, that, that Trump will remain a power in the party, or at least with his supporters. And if they voted yes, they would face um, uh, primary challenges in 2022. We'll see what Trump's position and his profile is uh, then. Uh, but, you know, that was clearly, clearly a factor, I think. Uh, you know, meanwhile, they're going to face uh, Democrats will be hanging this no vote around their necks uh, in 2022 as well. And those Republicans that just won swing districts, uh, you know, this is still going to be fresh in people's minds. I know that a lot of people move on from politics, but, you know, especially if Trump is still a major figure in the public eye and in politics, uh, this could be a factor. Hmm. Certainly. And bringing it back to San Diego County, uh, of our congressional delegation, the one no vote was Republican Daryl Issa. Knowing what we know about the 50th congressional district, uh, let's assume that he voted yes, uh, like 10 of the Republicans did. What backlash do you think he would have received had he done so? Well, it's hard to say, but I think that that he would have faced uh, perhaps a stronger primary challenge than he May in uh, 2022, you know, he's an incumbent, but he faced, you know, only two years, although he had, you know, been in Congress for almost 20 years before, uh, you know, taking basically a, a, a term off from uh, leaving a different district. But he, he was in a tough primary challenge and a tough general election against a Democrat in, you know, a very Republican district. It is a district that does favor Trump. I think that we saw some of that support waning a little bit, but it's still pretty strong there. So, that would have been a tough vote. It would have been a heroic vote uh, had he done that. You know, he says he voted his conscience. Uh, he didn't think that this was an impeachable situation and thought it was a political gambit by Democrats. So um, that's where he's at. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And ISA is kind of in an odd position among the rest of the delegation, being not only the only Republican, but also two members of people representing San Diego County have run against him. What kind of tensions does that create? Because San Diego County has had a history of having a congressional delegation that really works well together. It, it has, because we've had some long-term members. Uh, uh, former Congresswoman Susan Davis served for what was it, 20 years. And uh, yes, and I've written about this, and they've displayed it, that, that you know, there's this notion about how, uh, you know, politics ends at water's edge in terms of, uh, you know, international affairs. Sort of the reverse happens. I think a lot of Washington politics stops at the county line coming into San Diego when it involves San Diego projects. They've just shown uh, history over decades, really, of working together on uh, local issues. Now, I don't think that's uncommon in, in, you know, various regions of bipartisanship on, you know, things like water projects here, the border sewage. Uh, the border crossing uh, uh, facilities have been upgraded tremendously because of the uh, the efforts by members of Congress. So that's been happening. Will it not happen in the future? I don't know that we, you can say that. I think that, you know, as time moves on, but this is different than a, like a presidential election disagreement. Uh, you know, the, the members of Congress, uh, the Democrats anyway, felt physically threatened. And as we've seen that, that people intended to do them harm. There's no question about that that I said, you know, has been very clear uh, in condemning the violence, but he also has been one challenging the election results. And that has, you know, that false narrative has fed into uh, this this movement that, that Trump has foisted on the country. And so 
I think it might, it won't be as collegial. Uh, I'm sure they will work together when it, it happens. You know, you mentioned two new members. Yes, um, uh, that was another aspect. I mean, even without uh, all this happening, it would take a while for these people to get to know each other and know how they work together. And one of the new members, Mike Levin, actually, you know, got elected in ICE's old district. ICE uh, probably would have faced him, but he declined to run in 2018 because it looked like he was going to lose. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like uh, Susan Davis was kind of like the de facto leader of the San Diego congressional delegation because of her seniority. At this point, uh, do you see anyone who is kind of filling those shoes and taking that mantle? Do you think Sarah Jacobs will be able to, or do you think that'll fall to like Mike Levin? Well, actually, I think it falls to Scott Peters. Uh, you know, he's been there. I mean, Daryl Issa has been there longer, except for that two-year period where he wasn't in office. But he's in the minority party. He's a Republican. Uh, he uh, he helped the region a lot when uh, the Republicans were in the majority, and he was the chair of the oversight committee. Uh, in terms of you know the, the bring home the bacon, as they all try to. But I think Scott Peters starts taking that role. I mean, let's face it. You know, Sarah Jacobs just got, I mean, she was just sworn in like days ago and Mike Levin just got elected to his second term. That's not to suggest they won't move into leadership positions eventually, but I think just in terms of seniority and uh, connections with leadership, uh, Scott Peters, uh, you know, has that right now. Um, it, you know, there's room for other actions by the others to, to, to rise up. Yeah, and it's worth noting that state and local aid is going to be a big part of any coronavirus-related bill that is going to be passed in the next coming months. So, you know, it'll be curious to see what San Diego is able to get as, you know, this whole nation continues to ramp up vaccinations and recover some of the economic pain that we've all been suffering. Well, yes, uh, you know, the unfortunately, but it's the way politics works. There probably will be a lot of other things that that are barely, if at all, related to the whole COVID situation in that next relief package. That's somehow, you know, how stuff gets done. So we'll see what happens there. But I think the key thing is what they get uh, for the region regarding the pandemic. I mean, the past, uh, the most recent relief bill didn't, it was short in a lot of people's views, but also didn't help local governments. And I think that's a huge issue. Local governments really got a good bailout from the federal government and the states did as well. And that's missing from this recent package. So that'll be a key aspect because without that, you'll see the city and county really facing some hard times, particularly the city of San Diego. Certainly. And that was addressed in Todd Gloria's first uh, State of the City address where, you know, for the first time he broke the, broke the cliche, he said the state of the city is fragile and not strong for once. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it definitely it was. It was, uh, you know, some people said that's a state of the city speech, unlike they've heard before. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's largely a realistic view. I mean, to come in painting things uh, all roses uh, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't float at all. So, uh, you know, good on the mayor for for talking about reality, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, more broadly, when thinking about the future of G- the GOP, on paper, San Diego is actually a place where you could essentially start rebuilding the, the party in a different way because you have kind of all the pieces that you need for a more cosmopolitan but still business business focused party. And it did seem like that at former mayor Kevin Faulkner was trying to build that during his time as mayor. But recently, it seems that he's kind of leaned into Trumpism. Is this shift surprising to you? Or is this something that kind of tracks with what we've seen him done in the past? 
Well, I think there's two different things here, Daniel, that there's Kevin Faulkner and his, you know, moving towards running for governor. And then there's the local Republican situation. Kevin Faulkner was not really part of the Republican Party hierarchy. Uh, that, you know, was a very Trump-oriented uh, uh, group. Uh, there was a lot of controversy. They did well in internal party uh, structure and, and finances and fundraising. Um, but they did very badly in this past election where Republicans actually across the state did better than expected in picking up more congressional seats, et cetera. Um, you know, the, here they, they lost ground uh, in you know, in local city council, all sorts of races, uh, board of supervisors and so forth. And that's a direct result of, uh, I think, some of the philosophies of the Republican Party. Faulkner has made a shift. He's sort of had always been viewed as this moderate Republican. Uh, that's not to say he still doesn't have that, but he had been keeping his distance from Trump uh, since the 2016 election and even had some rather, you know, hard, harsh words about Trump and his divisiveness. Uh, he recently, he said that he voted for Trump this time. He said he wouldn't vote for him the last time, uh, basically because of the economy but or his views on the economy, but he didn't really expound on that. The reality of it is uh, strategically to you know run for governor and in, in, for a Republican in California, you need Trump voters. It's going to be a tough balance for him. Uh, and this is getting sort of into a different situation, but seeing how we're on it, you know, that could hurt him. It could help him in certain ways, but it's a, it's a real threading of the needle that you can't alienate Trump voters. But if you're identified with Trump, well, you know, Trump got a lot of votes in California, but, uh, you know, Joe Biden got many, many more. And, and Trump is really uh, loathed here. Mm. Yeah, it does seem like the political landscape, you know, nationwide is just deeply complicated at this point in which, you know, the legacy of Trump is going to remain a major factor in our politics for, you know, at least several election cycles. Well, certainly the, the legacy, but one of the telling things is, and again, you know, these stories are sourced, but, uh, you know, current uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, 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 Mitch McConnell, you know, was talking about how basically impeachment could be a good thing. That is along the line of, of you know, potentially making Trump a little further from the party and getting the party back to uh, something different than it's been under Trump, because it really has been Trump's party. Uh, whether that will happen, I don't know. But uh, it is a, a big problem that Republicans have to deal with. With Trump, at least out of office, that will help. Uh, you know, again, is he going to be marginalized after all this? That's the real key. Uh, you know, I would never, uh, you know, count him out. Mm hmm. And looking back at the events of the past week and also, you know, the continued push to overturn the election from President Trump, what questions do you hope get answered by congressional inquiry? Because there is enough appetite to kind of investigate what's going on here, because people are concerned that, you know, there could be some people planning something that's questionable, especially with, you know, the rise of conspiracy theories across the country. Well, on a number of fronts, I, I think that, you know, the investigations have to, like, look at, you know, the specific incident on January 6th and what happened. But also, you know, the, the intelligence agencies have been pointing to white supremacists and, you know, right wing militia groups as really being the biggest domestic terror threat in the country. That's not new. It's been ignored. And I think that they just need to the country is going to have to grapple with that. I think they're also going to have to grapple with somehow getting their arms around the truth. Now, people have different versions and can disagree with, over things, but until the Republicans can, you know, start acknowledging, I mean, look how many have not even acknowledged that Joe Biden has won the election. 
So, you know, that, that's that's an issue. But underlying all this, one of the things that, that we have to be realistic about and face up is racism in the country. Uh, you know, what happened on Jan January 6th was, you know, a white supremacist incident. Uh, and that's just the reality of it. Uh, people have been sweeping their racial concerns under the rugs. And, um, you know, with Black Lives Matters uh, protests and this, I think it's coming to the fore. But how we tackle that is going to be, I think, key to moving forward. Yeah, it'll be curious to see how much, you know, the understanding of structural racism will change our politics in the coming years. Because in addition to the protest, you also saw just much more interest in the nature of how American society treats different races differently. And I do think as a nation, we're in a different place now than we were in April when it comes to the understanding of how race affects political dynamics. But, you know, it's still politics, so it's still a fight, even though in many cases it can be unjust. Well, that's true. And a real battle, I mean, as we just had a battle over the election, for years, if not decades, we've been fighting over voting access. Uh, you know, black people couldn't vote. And then when they could, things were done to restrict that. Uh, that seemed to be expanded. I mean, you don't want to say silver lining of anything involved COVID, but the, you know, greater access to voting and ability, easier, making it easier to vote really was something. Uh, and, you know, that, of course, you know, brought on all the, the claims and suspicions and conspiracies. But so far, nobody's come up with any widespread fraud. Are there flaws in the system and were there problems? Of course there were. There always are and probably always will be. But I think what will happen is certain factions in the Republican Party will use that to try to, you know, retrench and and and, and pull back and, and, you know, make it tougher to vote uh, and to qualify for voting. And that's going to mm -hmm. be a problem. Yeah, it's like for this American experiment to function, we need to have as many people engage in this dialogue be a voting or activism or something else and that's really what 2020 showed that americans can do is that when the time comes people can say this is what i want this country to be and i guess the hard part is actually sitting down at the table and enacting new policies and rules that actually get closer towards that supposed goal yeah i mean you know there was an some encouragement as bad of a year as 2020 had been and Moving into 2021, um, you know the, the the voter enthusiasm was off the charts. I've never seen anything like that on both sides. Whether you agree with one side or the other, I think fundamentally that's good. It would be fundamentally better if people at least would agree on basic realities. Um, uh, you know, let's face it: is there going to be somebody like Trump again? And Will people follow that lead and just make stuff up constantly and do the big lie thing? I mean, he he was calling the election fraudulent, you know, months before it ever happened. Uh, you know, that's that's just it's unacceptable. But uh, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with people like that, because the fact that he was largely successful for a while uh, is going to encourage others to, to just be fact free. Yeah, it'll be curious to see how in the, the coming years you reconcile, you know, just how far away from the truth that many people have gone. And you really can't have unity until people are able to see eye to eye in the same reality. Well, yeah, I mean, people are always going to have somewhat different aspects of how they view things and how they view facts. But it's it's so extreme these days where, you know, and people just don't want to even consider uh, the alternative uh, view these days. So. We've got a lot of work to do. Certainly. All right. Michael Smolens, thank you so much. Thanks. 
And now, one last thing. You've just listened to my last episode of San Diego News Fix. I've accepted a position as a data journalist in NPR's Midwestern Journalism Hub. I'd like to thank you for being a listener to this podcast, and I hope, in some small way, I've helped achieve the San Diego Union Tribune slogan, Know Your Community. This podcast will be taking some time off. When it is back, it'll be in good hands. Christy Totten will be the new host starting February 8th. You have heard her on some of the UT's other shows, including Name Drop and Hello Gen Z. I want to thank all UT staffers, current and former, that have helped make this podcast what it has been. Until next time.